Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Wolverine The Lost Trail. Marvel just released season two of their award-winning scripted podcast, Wolverine The Lost Trail, for free. And if you are like me and are a fan of Marvel and of Wolverine, you may want to check this show out. The season picks up where season one left off. Wolverine is headed to New Orleans in search of redemption. As he follows a trail of clues through the bayou, he encounters biker gangs, a mutant called Gambit, who some of you may be familiar with, and a world full of dark wonders. The podcast stars Richard Armitage, who you may recall from The Hobbit or Hannibal or Castlevania. So listen to Wolverine The Lost Trail for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Sean Fennessy. And I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about your friendly neighborhood web slinger. I'm joined by my favorite web slinger. What's up, Amanda Dobbins? We're talking about a myriad of topics today. We love the movies. But you surprised me. I walked into the studio and you said, I saw Spider-Man this weekend. Yeah, I did. I I try to see things. I try to be informed, (laughs) believe it or not. I I love it. You love to see it. You love to see Spider-Man. I also was not going to see Midsommar because of, you know, previous step previously established reasons, though you and Chris Ryan did tell me the plot of Midsommar. And so now I know what happens. I understood all the jokes. Um, I have the memory of Chris Ryan being like, it's not a cult. It's a pagan farming community, (laughs) which is like a real thing that happened. So I get it. And now I've also seen Spider-Man. Midsommar had a, I would say, a mild opening this weekend. Spider-Man Far From Home had a massive opening this weekend. In Mm -hmm. fact, outpaced projections, which is something that we don't see that often from Marvel movies, especially the sort of second tier Marvel Mm -hmm. movies, the non-endgame category. What did you make of the Spider-Man movie? Well, a lovely movie for children mm-hmm. or for teenagers. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it is a, teenagers. I think is appropriate. It's, it's teenagers. It's yeah. a it's a cute teen summer trip movie, and I found those parts of it actually very charming. I Tom Holland, adorable. I know I've said it before. Wow, what a winner! I thought Zendaya was great. I the Gyllenhaal performance was like peak Gyllenhaal. I appreciated something for Chef's the parents. Kiss. You know, that's what the Gyllenhaal performance is. But I was like, oh, this is. They've isolated these movies down to their target audience. And it was just like really for, I think, your sister and for people who look forward to these movies. And I think it works on that level. Does it work on like a movie level? Uh, Not really. I didn't understand half of those action sequences. Yeah, it's not the most elegantly designed set piece movie of all time. I think it does have a couple of cool things. You know, Mysterio, the villain in the movie. is a great commentary on movies because he's basically a special effects artist and mm-hmm. he's a director. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the the bit I was waiting to share with you was just that I think Joan Hall's doing Fincher the whole yeah, time. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> but it it does have a lot of the kind of like fun, gleeful, high school John Hughesy angsty stuff yeah. going really well. I spoke to my sister over the weekend and she had just returned from a trip to Italy. Wow. She went with my my father and my stepmother and my my other sister and she texted me as soon as she got home, and she's all caps, I saw Spider-Man Far From Home. It is so good. And then I wrote back, that's cool. How was Italy? And she said, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> no caps. So <laughs> she could, And she was upset that her trip overlapped with the release date of Spider-Man Far From Home because she wanted to be there on opening night, and she okay. missed it on opening night. But nevertheless, she had a great time. Um, you know, there's going to be a long time before there's another Marvel movie. Yeah. And... I know that that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but as I think about like what this show is going to be and the conversations that we're going to have, and you know, later in the show, we're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about this year's Oscar race, the last 10 years of the Oscar race, this, just the general state of prestige movies versus what movies people actually want to go see and watch or watch from their homes. And then later on in the conversation, I'll have a, an interview with Riley Stearns and Jesse Eisenberg, the writer and director and star of The Art of Self-Defense, which is a conversation we recorded in March at South By. But the Marvel thing, if it is the center of the universe and then there is no Marvel movie for nine months, what ha- what happens to movies? It was interesting to watch this movie try to reckon with that. And it, you know, especially the beginning, which I, I thought the, like the PowerPoint sequence or whatever it was to I Will Always Love You of all the <laughs> dead Adorable. Avengers. It was very cute. But this movie is kind of trying to wrestle with the future of, like, corporate Marvel. There is that sub-theme in it. And and that's a lot of weight to put on a, a teen movie about just having fun in Europe and kissing the girl you like. I thought that was a weird tension. I guess probably 
most audiences don't notice that. I like didn't care about the drones, so I was thinking about that a lot. But there is clearly anxiety within the universe of trying to figure out what happens next. And some of that in terms of Spider-Man trying to figure out life without Tony Stark, I got it character-wise. And some of it was like a lot of projection. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. They, they may, I'm sure they know where they're going. I don't know if we know where all of this is going. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a chance. I heard superhero fatigue more than any other time after this movie, even though this movie did really well. I think the reviews, people were sort of like, so is this just what movies are now? This mm-hmm. is just what we have to do? Now, I, I like it. I like John Watts as a director. I agree with you on Tom Holland. They, they really just found the right Superman, excuse me, the right Spider-Man. That's a Freudian slip there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't know the the absence of those movies. Do you think that Marvel movies are teaching people patience in a way that nothing else can in 2019? Because we have to wait nine months now for what I presume is going to be a Black Widow movie, probably two years for another Spider-Man movie, even though it's got this like slingshot double end credit sequence ending where you're like, oh man, something actually important happened. I want to see what's going to happen next. See you in 2021. No, I don't think it's patience because I think it's teaching people a mode of consumption and when they can apply it to a Marvel movie, they go apply it to some other thing, whether it's Game of Thrones or, you know, them. I mean, in some ways, Star Wars also taught people that before this, but there is a mode of I just need to know everything and be consumed in this universe and read all the extra stuff. Um, And I think Hollywood has figured out how to serve that audience Marvel being the highest profile and greatest money-making example, but there's a lot of other stuff. I mean, Stranger Things was out this weekend, and I guess a lot of people just went, okay, well, I've seen Spider-Man and I have nothing else to do, so now I will just watch eight hours of this show. Although, did they? I don't really know. I didn't see a lot of, of Stranger Things chatter. It's an amazing question. I mean, we'll never yeah, really know. We'll never know. But just that idea of, I think it teaches people to expect more. As Maybe it's not patience, but like, knowing that they are, there's going to be a next thing that they have to consume, it's which is kind of like Pavlovian and really dark when you think about it. But I don't think it's, I wouldn't call it patience. I would just call it like a intense response that just gets applied elsewhere. Yeah, and Disney in general has created this daisy chain effect with almost everything that they make. So obviously the Marvel movies are part of this continu- continuous universe mm-hmm. that is going to make movies forever and ever. Star Wars, it seems like, between television shows and movies, we're going to have those forever and ever. And the thing that they're doing now that they're exploiting, sometimes effectively, sometimes not, is the live-action remake. What a segue. Thank you. Uh, so later this week, you and I have a date to The Lion King. Yes, That'll, we do. That will be an exciting experience. <laughs> Hopefully, if you enjoyed our episode about Aladdin, you will enjoy our episode next week, breaking down all things really Lion King. amazing how we're spending our summer together. Uh, it's just truly bizarre. You know, I, there's a part of me that wants Lion King to be great. There's another part of me that looked at the runtime as a 118 minutes. The original runtime for the original Lion King was 88 minutes. I'm mm. trying to figure out where the other 30 minutes of story are coming from <laughs> in that movie. Not sure that they exist. It was a similar feeling in Aladdin, which I think was two hours and 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't know why those movies need to be so long. Nevertheless, Lion King's coming real soon. But last week, we got a couple of pieces of information. First, we got news that Halle Bailey was going to be portraying the Little Mermaid Mm -hmm. in the new live-action Little Mermaid. Ariel. Yes, her her name name. is Ariel. Excuse me. Um, Is Little Mermaid canon for you? Is this an important Disney film? I've definitely seen it a lot, yeah. Okay. That was, because that's the first one. I believe Little Mermaid is 89. So we had— I think it's Beauty and the Beast, right? No, I think— Is it Little Mermaid? Yeah, because I got that wrong. But apparently, Mermaid is 89 and Beauty and the Beast is 91. So, like, the new Disney Golden Age starts with the Little Mermaid? I think— think so. Okay. Yeah. And definitely had it on VHS. Part of your world, extremely important. Mm-hmm. Just, I know all the words did to you, that. Did you fa- fancy yourself an Ariel? No. I mean, I think even at like seven, you know that the politics of the Little Mermaid are fucked up. So... Can't say I've revisited it in the last 25 <laughs> it's, years. It's not good. Okay. Uh, I, and I think like Ursula had sort of like a dark, but, you know, alluring power mm-hmm. to me even then. That ship is impressive. But... The songs are pretty good. She was she was really the Baba Duke before the Baba yeah, Duke, sure. gay yeah. icon Ursula. Yes, I was. I do recall that quite quite clearly, and I I remember enjoying Sebastian the mm-hmm. crab. That was yeah. cool. He was good mm-hmm. under the sea. That was a jam. It's great that stuff. Was a bop, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I can't say I'm like fired up for a Little Mermaid movie, but the the, the casting was notable because, of course, it was mm-hmm. another sign of colorblind casting coming from Disney. In you know, Ariel is a is a 
redhead white mermaid. Mm-hmm. In and the drawing, at least. In the drawing, at right. least. And this is, is, is the little mermaid Hans Christian Andersen? Yes. Um, so, you know, there was some outrage, I guess. I can never tell if the outrage is just bot-driven or if they're just extremely angry conservative thinkers who want their Ariel to stay a white mermaid. But some people were upset because uh, Halle Bailey, who is, of course, uh, one half of Chloe and Halle, who mm-hmm. is an R&B singer, YouTube star, who was sort of discovered and launched by Beyonce while, after they covered Beyonce for years, um, I guess is a surprising choice. But also, I feel like we're past this. Yes. Like, doesn't this feel like not a conversation point, the colorblind casting thing? To you and me, yes. And I agree that I you can't really parse on Twitter what is bot or just it, there are always five to 10 to a hundred like true idiots on the internet and they do like <laughs> to a thousand to like 2000, you yeah. know, cause on the internet, everybody gets their say, whatever. So you can never tell like when idiocy is being elevated like Fox news style or whether it's just whether there is like a movement of people. It's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I think that there are probably like idiot racist people who are mad about this, but I, I agree that it doesn't feel it just feels like we gave it a lot of attention. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the nuts and bolts of the movie feel far more anodyne. Mm-hmm. If you look at, you know, it's, I think it's fun that Aquafina and Jacob Tremblay are voices in the movie of characters. I, I'm sure this will be fine. Lin-Manuel Miranda is writing some new songs for mm-hmm. it. And it seems like it's going to be directed by Rob Marshall, who, of course, directed Mary Poppins Returns, mm-hmm. a movie that I don't think either one of us really thought ultimately worked very well. No. Um, the problem with these movies, and I'm sure we'll talk about this again with The Lion King, is like the originals are great and kids still like them. And it's it's completely transparent what the purpose of these movies is, more so than any other kind of movie, which is make money. Mm-hmm. Just make money. It's not an artistic challenge. It's not uh, a thoughtful reimagining. I think you could make the case that with the movies like Aladdin and now this movie, the idea of foregrounding people of color in some of the major roles is powerful and is meaningful. But I don't think that that's the purpose of the movies. No, the purpose is to make money and to get as many different audiences as possible. I think what's been really interesting, you and I had a whole existential conversation of like, what is the point of Aladdin? And do kids like this? And then our our colleague, Jason Gallagher, took his five-year-old son, or six, if Isaac is six, I'm very sorry, took Isaac Gallagher to see Aladdin. And Isaac was just like, this is dope. I loved it. You can read <laughs> Isaac's exit survey on the ringer. It was great. A, a child was just like, I enjoyed this. I had a nice time at the movies. So I think they are trying to get children. And I think kids maybe do like these movies more than we do, which is great. Be a child, like have your interests. And then they are just cash cows for nostalgia. And we should talk about the Mulan trailer. And the Mulan trailer debuted during the US women's national team championship game. It was the it was the final. That's why I don't remember it because I was morning, like I was barely awake. No, I got up and I watched the whole thing but I was like really not alert until the second half. Neither was our team. But that's okay. We won. We won. Yeah. Go USA or at least the women's team. Um the trailer came out and then there were immediately people on our staff being like, where's the talking dragon? And I was like, what is going on? It's nine in the morning. So can I confess to you, I've never seen Mulan. The original I saw Mulan. it in theaters, but it is a little past my prime Disney as well. So I don't remember the talking dragon. Yeah, that's basically the breaking point for me for yeah. I go to Disney movies. And mm-hmm. I remember seeing I remember seeing The Lion King in theaters three or four times. At my local theater. Mm-hmm. And I guess, is that 93? 94. 94. So I'm 11, probably, yeah. when that came out. I, Mulan is what, 95, 96? I think. You know, so I'm just, I'm kind of, I discovered, you know, girls and 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 sports. Wow, and, congrats. You know, that, that, that was just a different, that was a turning point. Mulan is 98. Oh, okay. So yeah. That's, that's, I clearly was. Exactly. I was on to other things at that point. So I haven't seen that movie. I will say, just based on the trailer, I thought it looked pretty good. And it's very difficult to do, uh, period pieces like that. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult with the sensitivities around telling stories like that. Yes. Historically, Hollywood's, Hollywood has been very bad at it. Mm-hmm. Nikki Caro is the filmmaker. There have been very few female filmmakers who've been able to tackle Disney stories like this on a grand scale. Um, it's a great cast. Uh, I was excited. I, it never occurred to me to be curious about a dragon. That is one of the challenges of these live action remakes. And I think it is one of the things that made Aladdin just seem a little bit stupid was that the genie was just very genie. Sure. And... I'm not a child, so I was like, this seems very silly. But to your point, a lot of children, and a lot of children overseas really loved it too. Aladdin's made a lot of money internationally. Yeah. And I feel like both The Little Mermaid and Mulan are going to translate well all over the world. 
I think that's true. And then I also think there are going to be a lot of adults who go see these movies because they have some childhood connection to them and you want to go see it. And then you may be mad about it. Like, I'm sure there will be a lot of people our age mad online about every single one of these movies. But that doesn't matter. They're still... Disney still is going to get their money and kids are still going to like it. So I think the live action thing, it was clarifying to me when you see kids being really excited about it. And then you also see people our age or, you know, a micro generation younger being like, this is not what I remember about my childhood. And they need to do this, this and this to meet my expectations. And I was like, oh, it's like the new quadrants. I get it. I don't want to put you too far on the spot, but yeah. what, is there a Disney live-action adaptation you would want to see? Because the cupboard is getting a little bit bare. I, we're kind of doing all of them. I mean, I was there for Little Mermaid, which they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I saw Beauty and the Beast in theaters. That mm-hmm. was a very important one. I went by myself to see Beauty and the Beast which on like an, in the afternoon, which was a dark moment for me. And then I realized I remembered every single word to the songs. One of the saddest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> It's like a like, John Cheever like short story. I, I try to be an informed consumer. And then, and you know, at times had a nice time. It was fun when they were doing the, the opening bell song in the French countryside. And I was like, oh, it's kind of always what I imagined. And I was singing along, whatever. Uh, they're doing Lion King. They did Aladdin. What am I missing? I mean, they've done Cinderella. Oh, yeah. With Lily James. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a handful of the classics that haven't been done. Obviously, earlier this year, we got Dumbo. We haven't gotten Pinocchio yet, which is in a long-rumored thing. Pinocchio, mm-hmm. of course, exists outside of Disney as well. That's right. A, that's a, probably anybody could adapt that. But Pinocchio is— Have you seen the, the animated Pinocchio, the original? Yes, but I think it weirded me out it's as a so kid. It's so fucked up. Yeah. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty evil. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like it, but it, it's— I feel like it would terrify children right. if you showed it to them now, especially the donkey boys. Remember that stuff? No. Okay, it's very upsetting. I think I just blocked it out. Okay. But, you know, that is sort of vintage golden age stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there's some newer stuff, and I feel like one of the challenges of these movies is going to be Mulan is probably the last true blue classic from that time. Because in that time you have Tarzan, mm-hmm. which I think while I, I know you stand for the soundtrack yeah. and a great <laughs> many other Phil Collins fans do. <laughs> uh, Thank you. I, I don't think it's considered a Disney classic. Emperor's New Groove certainly has its fans, my wife among them, but that's not a class. I don't yeah, think we're no. getting the live action Emperor's New Groove. And Hercules was right. up there. Remember Hercules? Yeah, the, the younger ringer generation loves Hercules. Yeah, and and Lilo and Stitch, Lilo and Stitch. Oh, I liked Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. Very sad. Was it? I have no idea. Oh, it's no really real. It's like bas- it's basically E.T., but but Disney. Yeah. And then and set in Hawaii, and I think, or similar. That sounds right. Yeah. I really don't know. I, a precursor to Moana. Um, I feel like maybe the only major, and we're getting Lady in the Tramp later this year too, which I think is going directly to Disney+. Oh, Plus. Yeah. I think Bambi is probably the most oh, classic. You can't make Bambi. Well, I think The Lion King is going to test the limits there. Oh, yeah, but The Lion King is like, Lion King has Elton John music, has a love story. It has, there's, it has some comedic relief. You know, he, I, here's what Bambi has: Thumper. Oh, Thumper! Thumper yeah. was G. Remember uh, Thumper? He was really. You good. can't. That's too traumatic. Like basically, as a kid, you knew you couldn't watch Bambi. It was too upsetting. They're gonna have to keep doing this for the next ten years. They've set expectations. That's so true. There's a lot of IP. You know, Sword in the Stone. We're getting the 101 Dalmatians okay. prequel. Cruella, I can't starring believe, Emma Stone. I can't believe you've gone this long without talking about Robin Hood, Disney Robin Hood. It's my favorite Disney movie. I know. I know. Maybe maybe we'll talk more about that when we do Lion King. We'll okay. get into some some Disney it's, arcana. I've seen it many times. I mean, we've already gone down the rabbit hole so much because this is what movies are. Movies are Spider-Man, and they are the Lion King, and they are maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the reason that I wanted to talk about Oscars this week with mm-hmm. you is I think that the Lion King and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are the first two movies that have come along this year that we could credibly call maybe Oscar movies. And I find that weird because mm-hmm. I don't think either of them are front runners by any means. And that means we'll probably get through seven months and ultimately likely eight months of the year without a single true blue Oscar movie. And I sent a kind of concern troll, fake anxiety note to you and our producer, Bobby, that was like, are we on track for the worst Oscar year right. ever? This is a super off year. There's been a lot of speculation about what the movies are going to be. There's been some festival movies so I want to talk about two things with you. Like, let's first just talk about 2020. Okay. Like th- th- this coming race that we're going to have. Great. Things that you're interested in. 
things that you think are locks sight unseen. And then let's just talk about what makes a good Oscar year because we had a bit of yes, a, we did. a bit of a contentious back and forth about well, what it means to have a good Oscar that's year. That's what we do. That's our, the nature of this thing. So, so this year, uh, I'm looking at a, an IndieWire projection mm-hmm. from May and some of the titles make a lot of sense to me and some of them don't. Um, I, we mentioned Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Pain and Glory is a new Pedro um, Almodovar film that was well-received at Cannes, though by no means like his crowning achievement. Yes. Um, I think it sounds like Antonio Banderas is going to be a best actor contender from that film. Then The Farewell, which is a great movie from A24. I, um, I spoke to Lulu Wang, the writer and director of the movie that will appear on the show next week. I'm not sure that that's a best picture candidate. Um, a Hidden Life is a Terrence Malick movie. Yes. Uh, about World War II. I could see a campaign that was bought by Fox Searchlight, which of course is very good at the Oscars, and building a whole It's Time for Malik campaign. I think that's what's coming. Right. And then The Report, which is Amazon's CIA docudrama written and directed by Scott Burns, which you and I have heard some not-so-positive responses to. Mixed. Mixed. Is the generous way. I think it was it was publicly well-received at Sundance mm-hmm. and purchased for a tidy sum. Amazon is going through a bit of a convulsion in its movie department with the struggles of late night and the significant overpay and overmarketing of that film, a, sh- yes. a film we talked about on this show. Those are the front runners on this list. I don't know. How can these be the front runners? I, this is a, this is confusing. Okay. This is, and I don't like, I, I think we talked about this ahead of time and I just don't think a world in which both that with all respect to the great filmmakers, Terrence Malick and Pedro Almodovar, like having both of those in a front runner, I, Fam, you're living in a different Oscar world and a different country. And maybe we would all like to live there, but I don't think that's the case. What's interesting to me, they have a list of frontrunners and then a list of a lot of contenders. I don't think a single one of these movies is has been publicly released yet. Not, like, I, you know, the report was a Sundance and there have been some festival stuff, but this is a list of 20 movies, you know, from A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is the Mr. Rogers biopic starring Tom Hanks, Cats, which is hilarious. Um, Can't wait to make fun of that movie. The Goldfinch, The Irishman, Little Women, Greta Gerwig's adaptation, Untitled Noah Baumbach. I really can't wait for Gerwig versus Baumbach this year, by the way. Sheesh. We'll talk about that. The Woman in the Window. There's, I mean, there are a lot of movies and not a single one has been released. And it is pretty notable that this is July and we just haven't. We haven't seen anything. And a lot of these movies, based on what I've heard, have middling to bad buzz. Now, I don't want to besmirch anything that I haven't mm-hmm. seen. But seriously, of the 15 or so movies on this contenders list, many of them seem actively not good. Now, you could make the case that that really doesn't matter at the Oscars, that there were often quite a few films that you would describe as not good that get nominated for Best Picture. And a lot of it is the campaign and a lot of it is the sort of political sense of the world. Mm -hmm. And who knows where we'll be when it comes to that. We're going to be deep in the midst of um, political campaigning, presidential races, Mm -hmm. Iowa, debate season. All that stuff is going to suffuse a lot of this Oscar race, too. So... I'm not sure that Ford versus Ferrari, like that's going to represent a very specific American engineering and individualism and a a sort of a a muscular affectation Mm -hmm. that I think some voters will really respond to. Now, I'm very much looking forward to that movie. Sure. But I worry about the hardcore jingoism that may come side by side with it. On the other hand, a movie like Harriet, which is about a biopic of Harriet Tubman, directed by uh, Cassie Lemons, you know, that's like, historical classic Oscar fair. Yes. You know, it's a it's a story about a important person in our history who we whose name we know but whose story we have never really seen on screen in the way that we want to see it. And it'll have a big, you know, moving performance by Cynthia Erivo in the middle of it. So like on paper, Harriet makes all the sense in the world. Ford versus Ferrari mm-hmm. makes all the sense in the world. Goldfinch, big fancy literary adaptation from the guy who brought you Brooklyn. You know, that'll yeah. that's, that sounds good. Are these movies going to be good? I, I don't, right. They seem like they were made in a different decade. Well, I, I mean, they seem like Oscar movies. And those aren't actually the ones that, cons- that's not what concerns me because in the second half of the year, basically starting in September, you start hearing about all of the pedigreed Oscar movies. We don't have, there are no studio big budget movies so far in the year. There's no Quiet Place. There's no Get Out. There's no Dark Knight. There's no, not the dark, I understand. Please don't at me about Dark Knight being snubbed. I know. But, you know, there's nothing mainstream in the conversation. It's only the, I think, the whispers about us. Because we're going to get to the end of the year and we're going to realize there weren't that many great movies. And then people will be like, actually, us, that was an achievement. Lupita, et cetera, et cetera. 
But you're right. There's there has not been a. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a show. I, excuse me, which is a film that I think we will cover exhaustively on this show and at the Ringer, especially because July is a goddamn dead zone. Uh, also, because we're excited. I, I'm very excited. So am I. Very very excited. I I rewatched Inglorious Bastards last night, and I was like, this uh, ba- bang on. Oh yes. my god. What an awesome movie. My favorite Tarantino, but anyway. Just such a fun, yeah. fascinating, weird, exhilarating movie that is two and a half hours, it feels like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, that is the first one for real, for real, that I think could do what you're describing. Mm-hmm. You know, be a big fancy studio movie with a you know sexy marketing campaign, movie stars, exciting performances, a little bit of history, a little bit of violence, a little bit of sex. Right, but that that people who don't regularly follow the movies know what it is recognize the name of it. And that's the thing. There's just like not a lot of brand recognition on this list, which sounds like a terrible corporate thing. But, you know, I learned last year, we, which I think was an exciting Oscar year, at least until the end. It was interesting. How about that? And you and I spent so much time yelling about it. And I would talk to some of my best friends and they were like, oh, A Star is Born. Should I see that? You know, it's, it is so, it is increasingly insular. And most of the movies on this list most of the Oscar favorites right now are kind of insular for movie people by movie people type movies. Yeah, and we desperately want movie culture to break through. Yeah. It's good for, it's not just good for what we're doing here. It's good in general because we want movies to be a dominant form of popular entertainment. We think that they bring something valuable to the world. And I think that they also, I don't really believe in the fact that movies can kind of change American culture per se, but I think that they set the guidelines for where things can go or should go creatively because movies are the most expensive thing barring video games Mm -hmm. that we have that actually people see and are influenced by and think about and analyze and make us use our brains. Like the great American novel, like that chapter is closed. It's too bad, yeah. People people are reading, but they're just not reading in the same way. And it's harder to have a J.D. Salinger in 2019. It's not necessarily harder to have Ryan Coogler. Mm -hmm. So we, 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 we desperately want that. And then last week, there was an interesting story that came out about a movie that I think we both liked called Triple Frontier. Loved it. And I think this, this, this is interwoven in the Oscar story that we're telling, which is that the headline is Triple Frontier leads Netflix to cut back on huge spending for films report. Now, this is a report that comes from the site The Information, and that is a subscription technology website that is very well regarded and has broken a couple of big stories over the years. And it was aggregated a little bit after the fact. I think the story broke on July 1st, but I don't think most people caught wind of it until the 3rd or the 4th. And it essentially talks about J.C. Shandor's movie starring Ben Affleck about a bunch of special forces guys who repel themselves into South America in an effort to steal from a drug lord. And it's a real classic 1987 guy's guy action movie. It has movie stars, mm-hmm. has incredible music needle drops. Has, has incredible hot dad fashion. Tons of handsome dudes wearing um, chambray t-shirts. <laughs> some good facial hair. Yeah. Some terrific nicknames. Ridiculous quotes. Some great quotes. Yeah. I, I think you and I and, and, the, and the folks we saw, we've got a huge kick out of it. It's true. I think people who went to go see it expecting a great film. And, you know, J.C. Shandor, you know, he made that Robert Redford Lost at Sea film. He made uh, Margin Call. He's a very, very most violent year, one of my favorite movies the last mm-hmm. 10 years. Very, very talented guy who's gotten some awards buzz over the years. Triple Frontier is not an awards movie. It was never going to be an awards movie. And it sounds like, based on this report, and it's hard to say, maybe not as many people watched it, either as Netflix told us watched it, or as they wanted to watch it. So Ted Sarandos did issue a statement after this broke, saying, quote, We're incredibly proud of Triple Frontier, one of our most popular original films. 63 million member households have now watched the movie since it launched in March. And we look forward to working on more project, projects with this talented cast, producers, and writer-director, J.C. Shandor. Uh, who knows what's true and, and not true mm-hmm. in, in that special stew? Um, I think the idea that this movie not being successful does not necessarily correlate to me to Netflix not doing expensive movies. Well, let's. there are a lot of different things going on here. There are. And let's break them down because I think a lot of this conversation and the reports have conflated a lot of them. The reported budget for Triple Frontier, a movie you and I had a great time watching and, like, produced content around. We were the only people, but that's fine. I recommend <laughs> it. Seek out Andrew Gradadero's work. Anyway, the reported budget was $115 million. That movie did not meet, need to be $115 million. That movie, 
at $80 million. That's an insane amount of money to spend on that movie, which I'm glad they made, enjoyed watching, and would watch again. So some of this is just that they're, and I believe actually the original information report is that they talked about this in the example of movies that we are spending too much money on, which is different than movies that we are spending money on or movies that we would make or movies that are successful or not successful. $150 million is a lot of money. And in some ways, this seems to me indicative. It's like the reverse of the Netflix strategy of we'll give you everything for free and then we'll start and, you know, make you a dedicated user and then start raising the price. Whereas it seems like their Hollywood strategy was we'll pay you guys just tons of money until we get most of the Hollywood creators working for us and then you scale back the budgets. It's definitely true in some respects. Triple Frontier was kind of a cursed property for years and years. The script had been, go- been going around forever. It was originally a Catherine Bigelow, Mark Bull thing. There had been a series of different actors who were going to appear. And I think Will Smith was going to appear in this movie at mm-hmm. some point. Affleck had been attached to it for many years off and on. Shandor ultimately came in. I think it was going to be made at Paramount. Then Paramount cut it when they had a change mm-hmm. of regime. And then Netflix picked it up. And Netflix has done this a lot in the last five years. They've picked up these orphan projects in an effort to grab big star attention right. and spotlight a, a particular kind of movie that we feel like we don't get enough of. Triple Frontier is kind of the always be my maybe of the, you know, Predator, Rambo-style American movie. And what its success is is hard to say. Like, $150 million may seem like too much money for a movie like this. But one of the reasons it costs $115 million is because they had to do reshoots and they were shooting in South America and that is extremely expensive lots of movie stars' time, lots of movie star accommodations that come with those things. In addition to that, if the movie made $300 million at the box office, we wouldn't say that was too much money mm-hmm. because who would care? No right. one would, I would, I've never, I have no idea what it costs to make Spider-Man Far From Home. I don't care. It's not interesting to me. It's only interesting to us in general, and I mean us like the public at large, if it bombs, quote unquote. Right. But what is a Netflix bomb? Is right. it something we don't know the answer to? And we're not going to know the answer to. Now, I have some bad news The last 10 minutes of our lives were a complete waste of time and a complete waste of time of our listeners. And there's a reason for that because some news has just come across our desk. We've just finished this beautiful segment about Netflix's strategy. We went deep inside their machine and we told you what is actually happening at the company and the movies that they make. And it appears we were wrong. Yes. Because it appears that they have decided to buy yet another major (laughs) studio cast off. In this case, it is Red Notice, a movie that Universal has been developing with The Rock and Rawson Marshall Thurber, who is the director behind the films Central Intelligence and Skyscraper. Have you seen those two movies? I haven't. I okay. saw the trailer for Skyscraper. Yes, they're they're perfectly fine entertainments. That deal was cut, I believe, in 2018. The Wall Street Journal reporter Ben Fritz had a really fascinating story. He got a look at the term sheet for this film. And the amount of money that Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, was getting for this movie reportedly is quite interesting. It's $21 million in a salary and 30% of the profits. And Ross and Marshall Thurber, who I would say is not a brand name director, though has been successful, stood to make $12 plus million on this movie. Universal has decided, no mas. Mm-hmm. They don't want it. Netflix, White Knight in Shining Armor, is swooping in to save it and bankroll what looks like a $125 million plus movie and put it on their streaming service. Mm-hmm. We just had this big conversation yeah. about Triple Frontier. Yeah. We don't, do we not know what we're talking about or does Netflix not necessarily know what it's doing? Well, I have some questions, but I was going to float this theory. I was just going to ask you, do you think that this is in any way related to a recent news cycle where Netflix was rumored to be cutting back on its spending? Well, that was my first thought as well. Perhaps this is a knee-jerk reaction to a bit of negative press. Mm-hmm. We read Ted Sarandos's official statement on the matter regarding Triple Frontier. Maybe doubling down for an extra $150 million and a shiny movie star is the way to counteract some of that press. I mean, I think that $150 million to them in the scheme of things is nothing. And he might be feeling a little frisky today. That's all I'm... All I'm saying. I love it. If that's the the way things are working, maybe we should start writing erroneous (laughs) reports about what Netflix is doing. How do I get Netflix to give Paul Thomas Anderson $300 million? I think just yell about how they would never do it a lot. Yes, I'll challenge it. I challenge you now, Netflix. But can I ask you a couple questions? So because of the deal that you just mentioned where The Rock and um, Ross and Marshall Thurber are getting a part of profits, what does that mean when it's on Netflix? It means that Netflix has to buy out all that potential future participation. Okay. So if you want to, 
loosely project how much money that would be. Mm-hmm. Let's say a movie like this internationally, if it's a big success, makes $500 million. So that means that's $150 million in profit for The Rock. Does that mean that The Rock just caught a $150 million check from Netflix? It's possible. It's probably not likely. It's probably closer to sub $100 million. It, yeah, it seems like if Universal is selling it off in this manner that you're not going to get a $500 million evaluation. Well, let's let's take a look at Skyscraper. Okay. I mean, that's not the Skyscraper is not exactly the same kind of film, but because Ross and, Ross and Marshall Thurber, I guess, pitched this movie a few years ago— and it was a very high concept, I guess, cat and mouse chase kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And we should say that the other stars of this movie are Gail Gadot and Ryan Reynolds. So Ryan Reynolds, Gail Gadot, and The Rock is pretty much as shiny as a movie comes yes. in 2020. So Skyscraper internationally, worldwide, made $300 million. Okay. 30% of $300 million is $90 million. Wow. If that level of participation happened for The Rock, that's that's pretty great. Now this is okay. just gross, it's not profit. It's right. you know, so it, we're, we're we're forecasting a lot of numbers. What did The Rock really make on Skyscraper? Uh, 40 million, okay. 50 million, something like that probably. Um but Netflix because they're worldwide. Yeah. And because there is no syndication, there's no home box office, there's no none of that stuff is in play. They have to buy everything. They're buying you mm-hmm. out fully. They're like the mafia. Right. So, I guess this is just a lot of immediate cash for The Rock. I and, guess so. And Ross and Marshall Thurber, I suppose, and The Rock's production company. Good for them. Do you think it says anything other than the reactionary tendencies of Netflix? Well, I think that it's no coincidence that it's The Rock at the center of this movie. And they Netflix has done well. I was thinking a lot about Bird Box. And Netflix does well with stupid movies starring people that you like. And this is probably a stupid movie starring three people that people really like. I mean, you can package it right next to the Fast and Furious movies, you know? Like, Netflix will just, it will go from one of those straight into this movie. And that's just for The Rock. Then you also have Gal Gadot, who I love, and who is obviously Wonder Woman and is bringing in all of the the DC fans. And then you have Ryan Reynolds, who is the patron saint of all 14-year-old boys, as I understand it, thanks to Deadpool. So I, I think that's what they're banking on here is that those people still have brand association and that people will click on it if they see one of the three people in the tiny little box. Seems like a really good bet. One thing that it doesn't have, and the reason that I suspect Universal is walking away from it is, it doesn't have any brand identity besides movie stardom. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say Fast and Furious presents colon Red Notice. Right. It's just Red Notice. Right. That's harder than ever to sell at a global scale. Yes. And so here we go, Netflix in to save the day. Can I just say, I think in my work, I think there's a real difference between going to a movie theater to sing to see The Rock and something that you've never heard of before versus like click and play on Netflix. And you're like, oh, The Rock, I like him. I just watched this other movie. I It, it seems like the right zone for them. At this amount of money, I don't know. That kind of just seems like Ted Sarandos being petty, but I kind of enjoy that. We eagerly await the forthcoming tweet from the Netflix account about the 758 million people <laughs> who watched Red Notice in its opening weekend in 2020. Now, Netflix is still a business and it cares deeply about its profits, but it's also shown us that it really cares about Oscars. There's two big Netflix movies that have been positioned to me as the Oscar movies this year. The first one, of course, is The Irishman. This is Martin Scorsese's de-aging festival starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Mm -hmm. Al Pacino. I'm obviously very excited about this movie. Sure. I think you're excited about it. Yeah, of course. Okay, it, it, I'm, I'm not a Philstein. You it, know, I want to yeah. see. I want to see what this is. It's an event, regardless. Yeah, that movie is rumored to cost 150 million dollars, more than Triple Frontier, mm-hmm. and I would guess it's probably even more than that if they're sharing the 150 number with us. Right. The other movie is the untitled Noah Baumbach movie, which I have been told is it's going to get a big push. This movie has been in production and post production for over two years. Noah Baumbach recently made a film with Netflix called The Meyerowitz Stories, and That was a good film, episodic, about a small family in New York. And it was a little bit of a 70s Oscar movie. It never quite got the attention that it deserved. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge huge fan of Bound Back in general. You are as well. I am, yes. And that's a different kind of play for a streamer, you know, a content company to make in the Oscar business. It's really hard and expensive to get the Irishman to the place you want it to from an Oscar perspective. Because, you know, Scorsese's done this like a hundred times. Remember Hugo? Hugo was a hundred million dollar Martin Scorsese movie that they desperately wanted to win Oscars and it didn't. 
And it, it's it's a great achievement, but it floated away. Gangs mm-hmm. of New York. Mm-hmm. A movie I love quite a bit. But that movie was not an Oscar-dominant film. It was in the race, and the Weinsteins pushed it hard, and they campaigned like hell. Yeah. But it was The Departed, which ultimately got Scorsese across the line here. And you only get one of those every 10, 20, 30 years. So The Irishman is a big gamble. The Boundback movie, I imagine, is a slightly smaller gamble. Maybe significantly smaller mm-hmm. for them. And I don't know if the success or failure of Triple Frontier dictates what kind of Oscar movies Netflix will make because I feel like they are the loudest player in this thing that we're going to be doing for the next seven months, basically, starting in September, where we just talk about Oscar movies all the time. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of playing for different things, right? I It was not my impression that Triple Frontier was ever supposed to be an Oscar movie, in part because they released it in March, in part because of, you know, and and also when Netflix wants to release an Oscar movie, they'll let you know. We saw how much money they spent on Roma and how much money they will probably spend pushing these two movies because it is really important to them. So I, it seems to me like they're they're fighting a war on several fronts right now, and these do seem like different fronts. And also, I, I, some of Triple Frontier, like you said, is just that you take gambles on things and some movies are good and some movies are bad and some movies have smoother cycles and some are disasters and then some get watched a lot and some don't. I feel like the triple frontier stuff affects more the always me my always be my maybe fun movies to watch at home. Things that we want to watch, you know, want to turn on more than the prestige just because we would have thought it was a no-brainer. I think you and I thought sitting watching Triple Frontier like, "Oh my god, people are going to go nuts for this." And it seems like people if they turn it on, turn it off halfway through, there wasn't a lot of discussion about it. And again, we don't know because Netflix doesn't release these numbers, but I, I certainly feel like I know more people who consumed Always Me by Maybe, Always Be My Maybe, it's hard to say, than Triple Frontier. It certainly has had a longer, like a longer tail, I suppose. So to me, it's more that they'll stop trying to make like the watchable home movies like really good. They'll stop spending a premium on craft and like the big actors, you won't get as larger paychecks. Some of the production values, the things that we've already kind of noticed for they turn because they turn out so many movies and some of them are, they kind of look more like sitcoms and they do like movies. And the script didn't get that like 18th polish. And it doesn't matter because you're supposed to be doing something else on your phone and it's supposed to be consumable and memeable and is really a different product than a movie movie. But I think maybe they'll stop making as many movie movies for home consumption. It'll be either you're Oscar worthy or and we're giving you an Oscar push or it's just for fun. That is such an interesting evolution of movie making in general, because the reason that we got these big kind of muscular action movies is because they were they were the Marvel movies of their day. Mm -hmm. They were event movies, you know, and, and there were certainly plenty of them in the 60s and 70s and they were a little less reputable. And then The Wild Bunch comes along, and then you get this whole series of 70s exploitation films. And in the 80s, you get the kind of diehard breed. And that becomes really the center of American movie-going culture. You have your ETs, and you have your diehards. Mm-hmm. And those are the two kinds of movies. And sometimes those movies come together, and you get Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe that means that a whole category of a kind of film then just goes away. And that film probably only came about because the box office demanded it. It was not the the sole inspiration of someone to write Die Hard. They were like, we're going to write Die Hard because it sounds like a fun premise to get people in a movie theater. And it's just so interesting to imagine a movie like Triple Frontier never existing again because that might be the case. Because a major studio that is not a streaming service is probably not making Triple Frontier anymore. Yes, but that's probably just because they either can't afford it or people aren't going to go see it. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think you're right. And it's just it just seems, it's so interesting to me. It's just clearly what people not what people want to watch at home. People on Netflix just want to watch The Office again and again. That's really what they want to do. They want a a comfort, low stakes. And the the idea that what is watchable on our home screens is now informing the future of all movies being made is like so, that makes so much sense when you say it, but it is really wild when you think about it in terms of entire genres just dying out. It is the, it is the, the driving force of my interest in the business right now. I mean, it is like the uniting theory that I am fascinated by, which is we got a certain kind of movie for the last 25 years, and now we just don't get that movie anymore for very specific functional reasons. Well, but 
that's what happens to, that happens all the time. Like, that's what happened to romantic comedies. Totally. And that people just decided that it wasn't worth going to a movie theater to see a romantic comedy. And then, God bless Netflix, it turns out people that will watch them sort of at home. Now, I don't think that they're as good as the excellent romantic comedies that were released in theaters in the 90s and, like, early 2000s. But, you know, it's a cycle. Everything everything does change. And it's happened before, and it doesn't mean necessarily that the movies are done forever. But I do think people are finally adapting to the way that we watch movies, sort of, anyway. I agree. And it'll be curi- I'll be curious to see how long Netflix continues to pursue the idea of the awards movie especially if they get one soon. If yeah. they get a Best Picture soon, which is something they've been in pursuit of. And obviously, Roma was wonderful, and it's just fantastic that they bankrolled that whole campaign, and then they put that movie in theaters, and that millions of people could see it around the world as soon as it was made. Great, great film. Didn't win. Green Book won, because that's what the Oscars do. <laughs> and I don't, I'm don't. i trying to figure out like what an Oscar movie is going to be going forward. Because when we were discussing this last mm-hmm. week, I was saying, well, I think you know, Moonlight versus La La Land was a great Oscars year. Mm-hmm. That felt like it had a clear narrative, two new voices, both of whom we thought these guys are going to be around for a long time. Very excited to see their films. Two films that do different things. One is this very personal, kind of festival-driven, sincere origin tale about love and vulnerability and masculinity. And that's Moonlight. And then La La Land is glitzy, story about Hollywood, bootstraps up artistic independence and all of those that's also a classic Hollywood theme if that to me felt like a coherent Oscars year and then it turned out to be a great Oscars because we had this extremely strange final result yes but I think that's only when it became great to the larger public because I I I loved both of those movies I think it's Moonlight was deserving and it is fantastic than it won but that's like you and me sitting here being movie nerds most people had not seen either. La La Land did make money over the course of the award season and afterwards, but like it's not like The Dark Knight. It's not like a big studio recognizable movie was released. Most people were not involved in our dueling narratives about what the future of Hollywood was, nor do they care. People just want to see a movie that they recognize kind of be in the conversation. You've said that a million times yourself. Absolutely. And I think it was only when this like meme happened accidentally in the middle of at the very end of the ceremony that people became aware of of either movie and so to me i think i wonder if that hurt the oscars in any way though because the 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 audience dropped like seven million people the following year the audience had had dropped steadily over the previous five years but huge drop literally the shape of water one and it was like no one cares about have you thought about the shape of water since it won well i'll give you a counterpoint and i know that every year is different because technology is changing very Mm -hmm. quickly and i think this is relevant to kind of what we're saying if we look at the last 10 years of oscar movies the year before the all in moonlight showdown the best picture i think was basically a foregone conclusion i think it was just always spotlight and so in the race that year was Spotlight, The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, and Room. Now, I guess The Revenant maybe was a contender. Yeah, I thought we thought that The Revenant was going to win, and then Spotlight did, and everyone was like, hey, Spotlight! I was pretty sure Spotlight was going to win. You know what's a great movie? Spotlight. It's good. Um, (laughs) The thing that's different about this year is that if you look at that lineup of movies, The Revenant, The Martian, Mad Max Fury Road, The Big Short, and Spotlight were huge hits. Mm -hmm. And they were not franchisey hits. They were, Mad Max, of course, was, but was operating on like a whole other plane of, is this the best movie of the decade kind of existence. Right. All these other movies are kind of classical, like docudramas or high concept comedies or, you know, these really classical man survival tales. They felt that this year, I would not have described it as a great year, but looking back on it, it has a lot for everybody. There's a lot of different kinds of movies that people like. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a great Oscars year somehow. Like the the sort of like, oh, Spotlight and Inaritu one. Like, I don't think we'll look back on that one and be like, that was the year we solved movies. Yeah, but it's who's looking back? And I don't mean to get as essential with you. set history right here on this show. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. I think we do have to grapple with, in the same way you have to grapple with, like, which movies are interesting to you and me versus, like, what actually succeeds in the world and how the industry is being reshaped by it. The Oscars is the same thing. Like, for you and me, it was very fun when Get Out and Lady Bird and Phantom Thread were all nominated. And I spent a lot of time telling you this the other day. And you were like, yeah, but no one cared. 
because it was just the shape of water and three billboards. And th- that was also the first year after after the Weinstein scandal and Me Too. So it was just a really dark thing and no one really wanted to watch it and it wasn't that fun. So the things that we think are interesting being represented versus what people actually want to pay attention to are different. And I think we think it's more fun when it's things that we want to pay attention to. But maybe it's, quote, better for the Oscars if it's things that a larger group of people want to pay attention to. You know, I believe in that. It's tricky because Get Out threaded the needle and La La Land in a lot of ways threaded the needle. That was a huge, yeah, big, noisy hit. Both of those movies were... Co- Certainly La La Land was a front runner and Get Out was in contention, though. Definitely a dark horse. This year, though, just to go back to that list, I don't know if I see a single movie that is close to on par with your The Martian or... maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has that kind of performance where you've got movie stars in the middle of it and you've got this kind of high concept story and it's very glossy and it's very fun and rollicking. Maybe, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is more of the La La Land, like isn't Hollywood Mm, special versus, I mean, The Martian was just like Matt Damon doing a science project and being charming. And it's based on a sci-fi book. You know, it's like, that is a much larger audience, I think, than, oh, it's another movie about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is for the people who already love Hollywood and love the Oscars and who are nostalgic about the old days or whatever. Or not nostalgic, are even willing to question it. I haven't seen this movie yet, so I have no idea. But I just think I understand that it, it may be crowd-pleasing, but The Martian was crowd-pleasing in a much broader way. What about Cats? I, we're not talking about Cats. I refuse. If Cats is nominated for an Oscar— for like one, I'm sure it will be nominated for some costumes and special effects ones. So if Cats is nominated for one like major Oscar, it might. So I don't want to promise anything extraordinary, but I'll be very angry. Sight unseen. Yeah. It will be nominated for Best Picture. You've got to be kidding me. Tom Hooper. Tom, I am i don't like to be rude about specific directors on this podcast, but no. I'm not saying I'm a fan. I'm just saying if you look at the pedigree and you look at the people that are in it, and you look at all of the the weight they're putting into this film. Now, based on the preview that I saw, I I thought it was just a straight-up joke. I thought it was an active Documentary Now-style parody, what I watched. Okay. But it's not. It's a big, important, major studio release with a big budget and some kind of unearthed IP that they're going to have to push out in the world. And you've got music, and you've got costumes, and you've got Taylor Swift. Yeah, but, like, they tried this with The Greatest Showman. Yeah, that movie made a shitload of money well, I, and I then won Cats, Oscars. Well, I know, but it did—was it nominated for Best Picture? No, but it, right. it did win Best Song. Okay, well, sure, Cats might win Best Song, although is it eligible because it's not original? I'm sure they'll write a new one by Taylor one. Swift. Yeah. I, I, under, I think it might make a lot of money, though, by the way, Taylor Swift doesn't make money anymore, so— it's, Just because she doesn't sell, you mean? Yeah, she doesn't sell. Or because Scooter Braun owns her masters. Well, a little bit of both. But she's not even like the powerhouse, especially getting people to a movie about cats. I really think that that's overestimating her appeal at this particular moment. I think it'll make money. I understand all of that. I don't know. And I understand that the Oscars are stupid. But they have been veering away from, I mean, we all talked a lot about Mary Poppins Returns and that being like a serious thing that needed to, with a pedigree and all of these important people that was to be nominated. You're right. It really did not make it into the major categories. Not even poor Emily Blunt. It's a great point. So, you know, it could happen. I would prefer not to have to talk about cats for nine months. I mean, maybe it would be fun, but. Aren't we all ready for the Quentin Tarantino, Terrence Malick, Pedro Almodovar? (laughs) Lulu Wong, Tom Hooper, best director race. Who's in? Who says no? Please respect Greta Gerwig. Don't mm. forget about Gerwig Bombach, okay? That's the major narrative. No one will care but us, but that's incredible. Let's have it. Let's do it, everybody. That seems like a good place to wrap up. Pitting uh, creative spouses against one another, leading into the Oscar race, which is something that we're going to be talking about for the next, I don't know, nine months. Are you excited to do so? Oscars. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Amanda, thanks so much. Please stick around now for my interview with Riley Stearns and Jesse Eisenberg about the movie The Art of Self-Defense. Really delighted to be joined by Riley Stearns and Jesse Eisenberg for The Art of Self-Defense. What's up, guys? Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, I need to know right away, like, Riley, where did this movie come from for you? 
Uh, I guess the original idea came from wanting, I, I do jujitsu as kind of a hobby and I wanted to make something that I, uh, about something I liked and, and was interested in. And then as I was working on the script, just started realizing that I had all these themes that I wanted to explore and uh, just wanted to kind of take a look at uh, what I was afraid of. And, and that, in, in a weird way, that was, uh, I was afraid of my lack of masculinity or perceived masculinity and, and what it meant, like society was telling me I was supposed to be a certain way and, and other men. And, and, uh, I, I just wanted to kind of explore that and doing it through the world of karate didn't totally make sense, but, uh, I, I felt like it, it could work. And Jesse, what was appealing to you about the script when you got it? It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, they just released like a one and a half minute teaser, which I think probably, which is unusual for a teaser, kind of captures the unusual tone. It, the, uh, Riley's dialogue is brilliant. He was able to create this story that is unbelievably funny, but at the same time, a very insightful comment commentary on kind of like ideas about masculinity and kind of the absurdities that you know the absurdity of uh the the you know the aspiration of masculinity and and um and how we think of it um it's just it's he did an unbelievable job so physically i don't think um many people would think that you were a karate expert what what yeah. kind of went into preparing for this and what do you, what did you bring to it obviously jujitsu is also different from karate so you're not exactly training your cast to perform either we do have jujitsu in the movie though so, and i was technically the jujitsu expert on oh, really? set which is funny to me but uh yeah we it was predominantly karate and and our, our stunt coordinator mindy kelly uh is an expert uh, in multiple martial arts and she worked with the cast pretty extensively but the great thing about uh, the f way that the film is kind of set up is that he's a white belt and only gets his yellow belt in the film. So, uh, it's only a three month, maybe four month span of time in, in, in the context of the film that he's actually supposed to be learning karate. So he doesn't have to be great. But, uh, that said, we wanted some things to, to feel a certain way. And, and it is a little stylized. So he's better probably than, than you would assume somebody be at that level, at that level. But, um, but yeah, I don't know what your experience yeah, is. Some of the like other actors just coincidentally did it. I mean, uh, the way they, you know, Riley cast the movie in an unusual way where, uh, we had some, uh, actors who were, you know, 70% actor, but 30%, um, you know, good at, at uh, martial arts and then uh and then there's an, one of the most amazing stunt guys uh steve tarada is like uh actually mostly you know a, one of the best martial artists uh but also is a good actor so um they were kind of cleverly casting it alessandro Navolo, who plays the other you know main character in the movie also happens to be athletic and good at it in yeah some way. very in very good shape which came off of an action film that shot in south africa where he was just already jacked and ready to go. And, and, uh, so we, we were able to utilize different methods for different people, which was, was really fun and, and interesting. He struck me as a, as a, as a real martial artist in the film. He's oh, good. very credible. He has zero yeah. experience. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. You guys had a, a, a unique chemistry, I thought, in the film. How did you, uh, did you talk much while you were making the movie or did you keep <laughs> some distance to, uh, Keep the animosity, the intensity going. Um, <laughs> we we talked. I mean, the nature of the movie, um, the way it was filmed, probably like a lot of the movies you're covering here, was like you know in twenty something days. You know, mm -hmm. a very short schedule. So ninety percent of the interactions you're having with people are being filmed because there's very little downtime. And uh, <laughs> the dialogue, we were both just in shock. We would do a scene and we're just in shock about how good the scenes are. Not not because we didn't expect them to be good, but just by virtue of just so rarely having an opportunity to do such well-written, such funny scenes with actually like wonderful characters who are, you know, consistently odd. So it's not like they're occasionally quirky, like they're just the consistent, uh, consistency of the tone is just so remarkable. And so uh, I can't credit us for the chemistry. I can credit Riley's, uh, you know, characterizations, which are just perfect. But I can credit them too. <laughs> <laughs> Riley, before we started, I said I, I, the tone is really, um, it is unique and it, it, you've nailed something specific that's kind of difficult to describe. Um, how do you get every actor to be hitting the same wavelength? Because Jesse, if you read it and you, you, you're like, oh, I see there's something unique here. Right. I read a lot of scripts. But how does every actor find the same level? Well, we did talk before shooting, but the, the main thing I think we all kind of, that, that I gave everybody was everything's very literal. Um, you mean what you say, you're not going to sugarcoat anything. It's, it's exactly how you're feeling black or white, no gray. And, and I think that helped like as an overall note for everybody just to have that in their mind. And if, if something's, if that something's funny, don't play it as a joke, play it very earnestly and seriously. And that's where the comedy is going to come in. Right. And how'd you go about building out the rest of the cast? 
Uh, I mean, Jesse already kind of touched on it. We, some of our, our side characters like, uh, Steve and, and, and Philip, uh, they already had some martial arts experience or stunt coordinator, uh, experience. Um, so that was, if they can act and they can do the stunts, it was kind of a no brainer for us. Uh, but then David Zellner's an actor, uh, or sorry, a director who I admire immensely, uh, he and his brother. And he also happens to act in a lot of his, his work. So I, I was a huge fan of him, especially in Kamiko Treasure Hunter and his performance in that. It's just so beautiful and really liked the idea of him playing Henry in the film. So we were able to bring him on board and, and Imogen was a no brainer too. She, she and I are at the same agency. And when they put us in touch, uh, her work in Green Room is so fantastic. And I was one away then and I've been a fan of hers ever since. So it, everything just kind of fell in line. It, it really worked out in the perfect kind of way. Was there anything difficult about this kind of action shooting? Because it's not the same as, you know, a, a car blows up or there's a green screen CGI moment. You know, the, there's like a physicality to this movie. Is that, I mean, you've not done a lot of action, obviously, Riley. I don't know. Yeah, Jesse, time. I don't even know if you been, I guess, maybe in a, in a superhero movie or something. But mm. what was it like to have that kind of like hand-to-hand experience while making a film? This was the first movie I ever did. And I think probably I could speak for a lot of the actors who have done a lot of movies um, who, and were on this set that I think we had a sense of like the purpose of every single shot. And I've never had that feeling before on a movie um, where we understood the story so well and the tone so well by the time we were filming that we knew the purpose of every shot. And so the action all seemed to kind of be very clear of what the story was. Um, there's some action, you know, especially towards like, uh, you know, the ending and it, every Everything we did, we knew exactly what the purpose was. It didn't seem like um, like I'm doing a Zombieland sequel now. And just by virtue of the size of it, you know, they do a million shots and then we'll cut it together. Whereas this movie, we knew the three shots that were required to tell this particular story at this and it's, moment. It's a timeline thing. You don't you don't have a lot of time. We were a 25 day shoot. We're a very small movie still, and we're trying to get a lot in. A lot of uh, there's there's motorcycle stunts, there's dogs, there's uh, fights, everything in between. And there would be days where you have to do a fight that's going to start in the morning and it's going to end at lunch and you have to be on to another scene at the second part of the day you're not going to make your day and you just have to get it and so my cinematographer michael reagan was was definitely uh, pivotal in, in getting a lot of that uh we went ahead at, at just in out of the virtue of what we had to do in this short span of time he went handheld on a lot of the the fight scenes and so a lot of that's his eye with my notes and we've worked together this is our second feature together but we've made a few shorts together too and uh it, it i feel like it shows because we have a kind of second hand that that allows us to get some things that you might be afraid of as the, at the start of the day but by the end of the day you're like how did we do that did you guys watch any martial arts films before you started making this not necessarily. I, I think that I have, uh, a good understanding of what, uh, makes up a pretty typical martial arts film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was a huge fan of like Jean-Claude Van Damme films and Bruce Lee things when I was younger. But as an adult, it's not necessarily a genre that I've been drawn to. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing is I wanted the first part of the film to kind of set up the surprise of where the second part of the film goes. So the, the beginning of the film is definitely a little bit more structured like a traditional sports film. Uh, he's bettering himself. You're, you're building to some, uh, kind of change in, in the character. And halfway through the film, I wanted the audience to have the rug pulled out from under them and, and them to be totally confused about where the rest of the movie is going to go, but along for the ride at the same time. So it's kind of the first part of the movie is the traditional film that you would expect. And then the second part is, is something completely different. And main, I really just don't, I don't like to be too influenced by other filmmakers. Uh, I try to find influences, uh, at least in terms of spirit and tone. But uh, uh, as far as storytelling goes, I just want to tell the story I want to tell. Jesse, is this a genre that you have a relationship to, the kind of movies that Riley's talking about? Um, you mean the, in tonally speaking, that kind of thing? Just more like Jean-Claude Van Damme movies oh. or Bruce Lee movies? Like, No, I mean, I think what was really great about this is that I think, um, we were trying to like, uh, subvert, um, thematically, but not subvert like cinematically. Yeah. So like when, what I mean by that is like trying to subvert the idea of, um, kind of the aspirations for masculinity, subvert that idea because the movie turns out to be, um, like Riley said, kind of pull the rug out from under you of what you're expecting and hoping for this character. And the, you know, first half of the movie, you're kind of hoping that he succeeds and be, and, and, and comes to defend himself. And then you realize that that's not the goal or that's not what you want for him. Um, but I don't think it kind of, it doesn't subvert like the martial arts genre. It's not like winking to the audience, like who know that genre. And it's not like stylistically trying to kind of, you know, uh, mimic it as a joke um i mean i think that's why the movie works well is, is because it doesn't like it's funny but it doesn't seem to make fun of the characters that everybody takes their own emotions seriously even though the way they're speaking is is quite odd 
This, yeah. this week I've been asking filmmakers what's an ideal double feature for your film. Uh, what, what would you? That's a good question. What would you like to? What would you want to watch with your movie? Um. Wow. What would I want to watch? You've, you've made two movies, so it's a no <laughs> you can I mean, do your own film. I, yeah, it's I, kind I, of a cheat. Okay. So it, the cheat answer really would be false yeah. because I, I actually found it fascinating uh, getting the dailies uh, in the beginning of making this movie, and and it had been uh, I, I shot faults in 2013, so it had been a while since I had been behind the camera, and all of a sudden seeing these shots from this new movie it felt like a Riley Stearns film, which is weird because I didn't think that I had a style and it's in a, and I know that may not, might not make sense, but I, I just hadn't, I had made a few things. And so finally seeing that kind of coming together and, and everything, it was really fascinating to me to be like, Oh, this is feeling like me. Uh, so I, I would say faults or, uh, I think tonally you could throw something along the lines of a Fargo or, or I, I just movies that I love Fargo or, or, uh, Punch Drunk Love, like things like that that are their own thing and maybe not going super literal with what would be the exact kind of like copy of a double feature, but something that maybe inspired the, the type of worlds that I like to build. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe those. Is there a Jesse Eisenberg movie that you would want to watch with this as well? Um, I mean, I, I, I so rarely find movies like this where it's really, really funny, but without kind of being comic, you know, explicitly comic. Um, I did another movie in 2005 that I felt as, um, like passionate about, uh, the tone, which was called The Living Wake, which is like a, an, an unusual movie. Um, and, uh, it's a little broader, but similarly kind of like so odd and specific in tone. Um, and as an actor, you just feel like, God, this is just like a gift to be able to work on this. Like there's nothing that feels pretentious or wrong or inaccurate about what you're doing. It all feels like you're in this consistent world and it's just, you just feel so lucky to be there. Um, but those are kind of few and far between because most comedies are trying to like kind of signal that they're comic. And so you have the added uh, responsibility to signal to the audience in some way that it's safely comedic and you could laugh at this and we're laughing at ourselves. And Riley wasn't interested in that. It makes the movie possibly less like broadly accessible, but as an actor, I would say it's uh, more fulfilling. Yeah, it had me on my toes, which I liked. Uh, I end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing they've seen? So what is the last great thing that you guys have seen? I have not seen a lot lately leading up to South by Southwest. Um, I did just see Climax, and there were some elements of that movie that I was really blown away with. Um, still think that Enter the Void is my favorite of his, but uh, Climax was pretty entertaining. That's a great one. Yeah. Jesse, anything you've seen recently that you like? I stopped watching movies out of, I don't know, some kind of paranoia. So I saw like a Hawk Spurs game the other night in Atlanta. and uh, That's came, a film on, unto itself. Yeah. Came down to the wire and we were all we were all kind of concerned right up until the end and then the home team lost. It's a perfectly <laughs> ringer answer. Yeah. Uh, Riley, Jesse, thank you for doing this. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Nice to meet you. Thanks as always. To my pal Amanda Dobbins, and thank you to Jesse Eisenberg and Riley Stearns for coming on the show. Please tune in later this week, where I'll have a conversation with the director Michael Dows about the new action comedy Stuber, and maybe having my pal David Shoemaker in to talk about Dave Bautista, perhaps our new Jim Carrey. See you then. <laughs>